Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello everyone and welcome back to the History of England, episode 75, Nemesis. Last week we ended the story on the edge of a cliff, with the fate of de Montfort's kingdom hanging in the proverbial balance. The Red Earl, Gilbert de Clare, had left court in a huff sometime in April 1265, and events began to move quickly towards their conclusion. De Montfort knew that keeping the Earl on side was essential. And so, he gathered his household knights and in May moved west and agreed to meet Gilbert de Clare at the town of Gloucester to discuss their differences. As he did so, he called out the local feudal levers. He would have been painfully aware that he was putting his head in the lion's jaw. The further west he went, the closer he came to de Clare's power base and to the uncertain loyalties of the marcher lords. Before we go on, let's have a brief geography lesson, with apologies for those of you who will know all of this anyway. So, this forthcoming campaign will take place in the west of England, in the Welsh borders. The River Severn is the longest river in England, as my son tells me, and although it rises in mid-Wales, for much of its length it runs north to south near the Welsh border. Along its length, running north to south again, we have the major towns of Shrewsbury in the north, then Worcester, then Gloucester. On the western side of the river towards Wales is the English city of Hereford, right on the border. And north of Hereford are the key Mortimer lands, centred on its castle at Wigmore. You'll hopefully remember that Mortimer is a major marcher lord, not a de Montfort supporter. The de Clare lands are all over southern and western Wales, and de Montfort's lands here are very few. De Montfort is well and truly an enemy territory. And meanwhile de Montfort's caput, or head castle, is at Kenilworth in Warwickshire, about 40 miles east over the River Severn. There is a map, incidentally, on the website for all of this. OK, so at first, 
things seem to be going fine. Although most of de Montfort's army is in the southeast of England with his son Simon Jr., de Clare seemed to be willing to go to arbitration about their disputes. De Montfort probably felt pretty comfortable at this time. Gilbert de Clare's brother Thomas de Clare was still apparently on de Montfort's side and part of his inner trusted circle. And Gilbert de Clare seemed happy enough with a panel of arbitrators that was stuffed with de Montfort's friends. So at the time it probably seemed to de Montfort like Gilbert trusted him. As it turned out, the real reason was that Gilbert didn't give a tinker's curse about who was on the panel because he had absolutely no intention of getting the stage where arbitration was relevant. Because unknown to de Montfort, while he was going through the jaw-jaw bit with Gilbert, an armed force had landed in West Wales with war war on their minds. The force was led by William de Valence, accompanied by John of Warren and Hugh Biggard, and there seems little doubt that this was pre-planned between them, de Clare and Mortimer at Wigmore. As soon as he heard the news, de Montfort moved out of Gloucester, north and west across the River Severn and up to Hereford, putting himself between the rebel army and the Mortimers at Wigmore. At this stage, he would still have been unsure about de Clare's allegiances, and on the 28th of May he was clearly still feeling reasonably chilled, chilled enough to meet the Abbot of Chester and have a bit of a chat. By evening he would have heard the news that would change everything. So at this stage, formally Edward has been set free by arrangement with Parliament. In fact, Edward was anything but free, being followed around by a bunch of burly knights with attitude problems. On the 23rd of May 1265, de Montfort felt relaxed enough for two of Edward's local mates, Clifford and Leyburn, to visit Edward. And these two, along with Thomas de Clare, who was constantly in attendance and apparently on de Montfort's side, but who was in fact, no doubt, the go-between between Gilbert and Prince Edward. So on the 28th of May, Edward set out with his burly knights and Thomas de Clare, with the express intention of testing the horses. Simple, but clever. Edward then proceeded to ride each horse to exhaustion before giving it back to the relevant burly knight and trying out the next one. Eventually he came to the last horse, hopped on it and headed for the hills. All the burly knight's horses were knackered of course and so they had no hope of stopping him how they must have laughed at their foolishness. Within hours Edward was at Wigmore Castle with Mortimer there to be joined by Gilbert de Clare and brother Thomas who now declared their hands. They agreed on the bit they really liked about the provisions, i.e. no aliens, but they ignored the bits they didn't like, so who cares about a bit of peasant bashing? And you can bet your life it'll be the king choosing his own councillors from here on in. De Montfort was now officially in the poop. His first reaction was to send back a note to the main castle at Kenilworth to slap Richard of Cornwall in irons. Call for a muster of all the tenants-in-chief from all over England to assemble at Worcester, and send a note to his son Simon to come at full speed with the rest of his army, while Simon Senior remained at Hereford. But he was now facing a man with growing military ability in Prince Edward, and Edward proceeded to cut de Montfort off from his allies. Along the line of the Seven, the bridges were all taken. By the 7th of June, Shrewsbury and Worcester had fallen, and their bridges were broken down, with the boats drawn up on the eastern bank. Chester in the north was under siege, De Montfort's muster was then changed to Gloucester, the site of the last bridge and De Montfort's last escape route. But as things worsened, De Montfort in desperation made alliance with the devil, so to speak. On the 19th of June, he forced Henry to recognise Llewellyn's status as a Prince of Wales for a payment of 30,000 marks. 
Meanwhile, Simon Jr. was moving with spectacular lack of speed and behaving with impressive ineptitude. By the 24th of June, he'd reached London. Hopeless. From then on, he didn't get any faster. He marched to Winchester and spent three days attacking and sacking the place. Not only was sacking Winchester not on the priority list at this point in time, it wasn't even on the way from London to Kenilworth. Then, on the 29th of June, Gloucester fell to Edward and the last bridge was gone. De Montford was cut off. His next plan was to get some boats in South Wales, cross over to Bristol and meet Simon Junior there. But Edward scuppered that plan too, destroying his boats. De Montford withdrew again to Hereford and waited to be surrounded. But to his surprise, Edward didn't appear. Because by the 31st of July, after the slowest emergency rescue march in history, Simon Junior had finally reached Kenilworth. And warned of his approach, Edward crossed over the Severn at Worcester. Now, Kenilworth is a monster of a castle, and make no mistake, well worth a visit, by the way. On that evening, Simon Junior arrived with his men. He knew that Edward was 35 miles away at Worcester, so in the middle of a war situation, the obvious option was to party on down. So, rather than locking themselves up in impregnable Kenilworth Castle, they stayed to enjoy the stews of the town. Great choice. Unfortunately for them, Edward was at that very moment marching grim-faced through the night, and they fell on the unsuspecting army and captured a large number of the leading Montfordians. Disaster. But not necessarily the end of the game. Simon Jr. managed to escape into the castle with a fair old force, and if he could link up with Parr, all was not yet lost. And since Edward had left Worcester, Simon Sr. was able to move without danger. And so finally, on the 2nd of August, he managed to cross the Severn just south of Worcester and head towards Kenilworth, with the plan that Simon Jr. would meet him on the way. And so at dawn on the 4th of August, de Montfort Sr. crossed the River Avon at a place called Evesham. It was a dangerous place to be, because Evesham lies in the loop of the River Avon, a bag with two exits. The bridge he'd just come over, and the mouth of the sack to the north. He knew Edward's army was near, but he had a detachment of Welsh mercenaries from Clewellyn, and as long as he could meet up with Simon Junior's army, he would have a fighting chance. De Montfort would have felt confident in his own generalship. Before long, he knew that all his hopes now rested on his son, because behind him a detachment of Edward's army took the bridge he'd just crossed over, so there was no escape back out that way. And then, within a couple of hours, let's say about seven o'clock in the morning, de Montfort saw the advancing banners of his son's army, or so he believed. At this point he was in the abbey, and his barber was at the tower, and he shouted down to de Montfort, We are all dead men, for it is not your son as you believed. The chroniclers give us quite a bit of direct speech for de Montfort, and they're quite interesting. Isn't there some model about how people take on change, you know, denial, acceptance, resignation, all that sort of thing? Well, here goes. So firstly, he turns to his son Henry, who's with him, and says rather bitterly, Your presumption and the pride of your brothers has brought me to this end. Referring presumably to the riches they'd built up and the fact they'd really, really irritated Gilbert de Clare. And then most famously he said, May God have mercy on our souls, for our bodies are theirs. The people around him implored him to stay in the church and then he'll be okay. But that's not the way de Montfort wants to go. Churches are for chaplains. The field is for knights, is what he then said. De Montfort basically knew he had no chance of victory. 
It was heavily outnumbered, presumably even more than at Lewis, and unlike then, they had no advantage of position or surprise. De Montfort had his men confessed and given communion, so that they would then be less scared of death. And then they advanced out of the town towards Edward's army. With more than a touch of arrogance, he then remarked, By the arm of St James, they come on well. They did not learn that themselves, but from me. As they met Edward's army, the heavens opened and a thunderstorm poured down. Evesham, for me, marks a significant change in the rules of politics to a much harsher world. Edward had organised a death squad of his biggest and bravest knights, their job to find and kill de Montfort. As the two armies met, Henry de Montfort was the first to die, and Simon is supposed to have said, Then it is time to die. Which I think he might have got from Blade Runner, but anyway. His horse was killed from under him, and as he fought with his sword, Roger Mortimer ran him through the neck with his lance. Around him, 30 Montfordian knights were killed, many of whom had been his supporters for the last 20 years. Now look, this is exceptional. Remember the Battle of Lincoln in 1217, when the Count of Persh was the only chap to be killed, and everyone was really, really sorry. This bloodletting was absolutely exceptional. Nothing like this had happened since the conquest. And what happened next was likewise exceptional. De Montford was dismembered. His feet and his hands were cut off. His testicles and his head were cut off and his testicles stuffed into his mouth. The head was then sent off to Lady Mortimer as a sign of her husband's triumph. Lady Mortimer was a briuse and therefore well used to the marches and its happy ways. History doesn't record how she reacted to this most romantic of presents. But knowing the history of the marches, it could well have been a polite acknowledgement with a private sigh that she already had one of those, and what was she going to do with a new one? Is it just me, or is this the start of a change in the nature of political violence? I did raise this on a history internet chat room once, and got laughed at, but I think there's something in it. For the last 200 years, noble rebels have either been fined and let off, or at worst, imprisoned. Some of them, fair enough, for life. Events such as the murder of Arthur at the hands of John are notable precisely because they're so exceptional. But now we're on a very different road that will lead to William Wallace being hung, drawn and quartered, Welsh nobles murdered and red-hot pokers shoved up royal backsides. And basically it's Edward Longshanks who starts it all off. There is a level of vindictiveness here that is new and quite unattractive. De Montford was treated differently because he'd broken that aristocratic code. He'd led a populist revolt that had seen the Queen pelted with mud and insulted and the very nature of kingship questioned. That was unforgivable. Meanwhile, Simon Jr., on his way with his army, saw his father's head being carried, testicles and all, to the rendezvous with Lady Mortimer, and retired to Kenilworth Castle, refusing to take food and drink for several days. As well he might. If he hadn't been such a dipstick, maybe England would have had a constitutional monarchy many centuries before it did. Roger Leyburn, meanwhile, found a loser in battered Monfordian armour, wounded in the shoulder, wandering around, shouting, I'm Henry of Winchester, your king, do not kill me! I'm Henry of Winchester, your king! And so father and son were reunited. Meanwhile, de Montford's army was being slaughtered. Running men were cut down and killed. The streets of Evesham were clogged with the bodies of the dead. Many headed for the Abbey Church and its much-famed sanctuary. Do you know, if I was a medieval loser in a battle, it's the last place I'd go. The only time I ever hear of this sanctuary thing is when it's been completely ignored. And so it was here. 
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. While we're on the gore-filled quotes, here's another one. The choir, the walls, the cross, the statues and the altars were sprayed with the blood of the wounded and the dead. Sweet. And one final quote, which pretty much sums up the events of the day. The murder of Evesham, for battle it was none. And so the rebellion was over. Everything returned to normal and everyone lived happily ever after the end. Well, not quite. We'll get to the messy and vindictive unwinding of the rebellion in a minute. But look, we should reflect just for a moment on this whole reform thing, shouldn't we? In one sense, the whole reform attempt was a complete and utter failure. In particular, the provisions of Oxford and their attempt to formally limit the royal power sank without trace until the 17th century. It failed so utterly, in fact, that later rebels avoided that approach like the plague and began to focus on getting rid of the king himself instead but there is no doubt that the rebellion changes things. From here on in, even kings, as decisive and aggressive as Edward I, rule through Parliament and through consensus if they want to be successful. Many of the practical changes in royal administration embodied by the provisions of Westminster are put in place in 1267 by the Statute of Marlborough. Knights and burgesses are now an integral part of the body politic, with the ability to influence and shape events. In addition, the community of the realm had been given material reality, and the inclusion of the peasantry in that community was quite exceptional. The reforms of 1258-1265 would have been inconceivable in any other European country. And it takes a long time for de Montfort's reputation to fade. His body, less the bits that had been cut off for onward distribution, was buried by the monks of Evesham under the altar. People flocked from all parts of the country to his shrine until Henry caught wind of it, had him dug up and buried under a tree somewhere. Once the memory of him as a martyr did begin to fade, de Montfort, of course, still has a central and controversial place in English history. And while his role in the development of English constitutional monarchy is well overstated by the Whig historians, his role in giving a wider society a voice is an essential part of England's political development. However, in one area he held as most important, he completely messed up. He failed utterly to establish the de Montfort dynasty in England. His wife Eleanor fled abroad with 11,000 marks, itself a pretty clear indication of the amount of money that de Montfort had managed to amass in 1264-5. She never returned, retiring to a Dominican nunnery and dying in 1275. Of his sons, Richard disappears. Amori appears a bit, Arrested at one point with his sister Eleanor as she tries to make her way to Wales to her betrothed Llewellyn, and then dies abroad in 1300. Simon and Guy have a more bloody future, 
which is tied up with the messy, vindictive and characteristically bumbling aftergame visited on the nation by Henry, Eleanor and Edward. So, after the rebellion against John or Henry II, for example, the general approach had been, find the rebels, let them take their land back, and we'll all get on with it. This was not the approach Henry wanted to take. He wanted revenge. Immediately after Evesham, there was a mad rush by all and sundry to take over the manners of the ex-Montfordians. Generally speaking, the Montfortians had seen the futility of resistance and most castles were surrendered. But not everywhere. The point is that there is no doubt that there's a strong residual loyalty to the cause and no doubt that attitudes have changed. There's a story that Michael Wood talks about that illustrates it all rather nicely. On the 7th of August, 1265, three days after the Battle of Evesham, the victorious royalists started to appear in De Montfort's heartland in Leicestershire. So a man called Peter de Neville came to claim a small village called Peatling Magna. A few days later, it all got too much of the villagers. They tried to arrest one of Neville's grooms, and as a result, Neville had to appear with a force of armed men to cow the villagers. But he found them unapologetic, and they accused Neville of sedition, and of being against the welfare of the community of the realm. Now it transpired that the women had a good deal more common sense. They stepped in, said how sorry their menfolk were, and that they'd pay a fine to show just how sorry they were, and Neville was mollified for a while which meant he was proper blazing when the menfolk then took him to court. Now in the end, the peasants of Peatling Magna lost their case and would have to adjust to the new realities. But it's interesting to see how deep de Montfort's principles had sunk and the strength of English loyalty to that reform. Plus, there were a few diehards left at Kenilworth. Had they been offered a way back into society, this residual loyalty would probably have quickly drained away and life would have got back to normal. And probably that's what everyone expected would happen. But in September, Henry made sure the bitterness would continue. He declared that the rebels and their families would be disinherited forever. So really, no point giving up Kenilworth then, since there's absolutely zip left to lose. May as well die for the cause. Richard of Cornwall had brain enough to realise that this was poison, and withdrew from court in protest. Edward stayed right where he was and started tucking into the goodies. Seventy or so individuals profited from the disinheritance. More than four times that number were essentially cast out of society and brought their bitterness with them. The result was the bloom of desert flowers. The disinherited, as they came to be known, took to the woods and the hills and raised the banners of rebellion. Simon Junior, for example, left the garrison at Kenilworth and was holed up in the marshy area of the Isle of Axholme. The Cinque Ports had refused to submit and carried on their piracy despite Royalist attempts to bring them to heel. But the next target for the Royalists was London, and for its support of de Montfort, London was destined to live under a cloud until the death of Edward. As the King approached, 40 delegates were given safe conducts and decided to throw London on the mercy of the King. Once in the King's presence, the promises of safe conduct were duly ignored and they were chucked in the clink. Property in London was randomly grabbed. A fine of 20,000 marks was imposed. By October, Eleanor of Provence was back with husband Henry, cheered to see her and happy to talk to her. And then Edmund, Henry's second son, was given all the de Montford lands. By February 1266, both Simon and Guy had fled abroad, but resistance in England continued. One of the problems was that the royalist promises weren't trusted, Henry, Eleanor and Edward had all shown their casual attitude too many times to breaking promises. 
Despite the submission of the sink ports in early 1266, a new wave of violence rose up in April, and the assault on Kenilworth was again delayed, while Henry of Almain and Edward suppressed that revolt. Then it was back to Kenilworth and the siege continued, but again another revolt flared up in August 1266, as the disinherited seized the Isle of Ely, a good old traditional place for a revolt, as you'll remember from Hereford the Wake. Finally, Henry got the message, and to do them justice, the papal legate was very influential in bringing them to reason. So a parliament was called at Kenilworth itself, and the result was the dictum of Kenilworth. The deal was still pretty brutal. The disinherited had to pay a fee several times the value of the land to get it back. For minor offenders, the deal was more bearable. They had to pay twice the value, and had five years to do so. But major offenders might have five times the value which in the words of the rebels of the Isle of Ely was pretty much the same as disinheritance anyway. And the real kicker was that the rebels had to make the payments before they got their land back. So they couldn't use the revenue, which seems more than a little daft, since how then was the relevant disinherited supposed to get the money together? So while the dictum probably did make a difference, giving some of the rebels a reason to stop fighting, for many it was pretty much irrelevant, and they fought on. The fall of Kenilworth after a six-month siege at Christmas 1266 was clearly a blow for the rebels. But once again another revolt, this time the Vesey family in Northumbria, flared up. And at last someone was prepared to raise serious support for the disinherited and slightly surprisingly it was Gilbert de Clare. Gilbert appeared in London with his followers and declared for the disinherited. And now at last, Henry and Edward were forced to face the danger of a real resurgence of the revolt, because de Clare was a man who could make the revolt general again. And so they were forced to face facts, helped by Richard of Cornwall and the papal legate. A crucial change was made to the dictum that the disinherited could now resume their lands straight away, and therefore use the income from those lands to pay off their fine. And this finally gave the disinherited the deal they needed, and by July 1267, The revolt was finally over and the reconstruction could begin. In general, the large majority of these families would be able to rejoin society, though there were plenty of more painful moments. One of those would be the rather shameless destruction of the Ferrers family by Edward. It's a little difficult, though, to feel very sympathetic for Robert Ferrers, the Earl of Derby. He was a violent, unreliable young man, and incidentally the guy who'd led the sack of Worcester for want of anything better to do but he was forced to give up his lands under duress and saddled with unrepayable debt, with a complete lack of any consideration for justice. The point is, we are still some way away from the consistent rule of law, despite nine years of struggle. But when whatever counts as the medieval equivalent of an alarm clock went in August 1267, at last Henry and his royal family could sit up in bed, take stock, and start to think of what they'd like to do next, rather than having to run around like blue-arse flies trying to squash that de Montfort bloke. And in the great sweep of English constitutional history, we are back to the reassuringly trivial. Edward was 28 years old, and seemingly well on the way with his wife Eleanor of Castile to building a massive family that would ensure the succession for many generations to come. Actually, one of Edward's more attractive features was the obvious depth of his relationship with his wife. And for any parent, the history of their parenthood is pretty harrowing. Eleanor would give birth to 15 children, 10 of whom would die before she did. In 1267, she had already given birth to three girls, one of whom had been stillborn, and the other two had died within a few months. 
Nonetheless, in July 1266, Eleanor had given birth to a male child. So here we are, in the middle of the crisis with the barons, the Battle of Evesham not yet under the belt. And what's the most reassuring name you can think of? To reassure your baronial supporters that things are going to be okay from here on in, and they will be able to trust this lad when he becomes king. Any answers, please, on a postcard to the History of England? But actually, I'll tell you, Edward went for John. Not a name I would suggest, designed to reassure or conciliate. More of a palm inserted firmly in the face of the body politic, along with the phrase, Wanna make something of it? Yeah? Anywho, that's our Edward. For an active and aggressive bloke, the ending of the Barons' War must have carried with it something of a threat. He was now faced with the prospect of once again becoming an also-ran. And having been the architect of the victory of Evesham, you can imagine that he'd chafe at having to buckle under and watch Mum and Dad botch things up again. The answer, as far as he was concerned, was to go on crusade. And one of the reasons why the papal legate was over in England was to preach the crusade. And in fact, Edward's first act was to persuade his father to lift the prohibition on tournaments in 1267, so that again he could have a bit more fun, but crusade was the big one. I'd guess that Henry was less worried about chafing and would have been very happy with the prospect at last of some quiet times. For him, the thing was cathedral building. He'd started the rebuilding of Westminster back in 1245, and it still wasn't finished. He wanted to get on with the business of translating the body of his hero, Edward the Confessor, to its new shrine in the new church. But both of these things will have to wait until next week. Next week, we will be in the recently rather rare position of finishing off a reign and starting a brand new one. It is with some relief that I will see Henry's body start mouldering in the grave, and we can get on with a king who, love him or loathe him, was certainly anything but a pushover. So my grateful thanks to all of you for your comments on the website, Facebook, iTunes and email. Please keep them coming. Good luck and have a great week.